Welcome, caller. You're on the line with the calls are coming from inside the podcast, an exploration of the human side of horror. Each week, we call a unique guest and ask them about one horror movie that left its mark on them. Together, we do a deep dive into our guest's personal connection to find out what horror feels like. I'm Kevin Sparrow, and this week, we have a celebration so big we had to split it into two parts. The penultimate week of September marks our one-year anniversary, providing you insights into what horror feels like. So to close out Glamp Month and the end of year one, we wanted to share two of our favorite camp 90s movies. Today, we're joined by guest Cal Walker to talk about the hilariously macabre Death Becomes Her. Then come back Thursday for another movie conversation with one of our very first guests. Let me look and listen one more time. Make sure your heart's beating. Last I checked, I have a slight arrhythmia, which I've just always had. You know, arrhythmia. And theoretically, I I should get it checked out, but I haven't died yet, so I just assume that it's fine. Um, Yeah, I mean, if you haven't died yet, you're going (laughs) to assume. We all are. Unless you can go against the laws of nature. Oh my god. Today's movie. (laughs) But welcome back. I'm here once again with Cal Walker, theater maker, playwright, writer. Their horror play, That Thing in the Bathroom, is now published on some scripts. So check it out. It's an online literary magazine. Issue 5. Focused on scripts. Issue Issue 5 of some some scripts. Some scripts. Dot com. Titled What Now? It's very exciting. It's the first time I've published a play. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Look for my solo performance, The Anxiety Variety Show. Fall, uh, this this coming fall, November, yeah. November-ish. November-ish? November-ish. November-ish. Late, late November, Ooh. after Thanksgiving. Ooh. Thanks for having me back. I'm surprised I'm here for the third time. The third time? We always want people to come back again and again. There might be different reasons, especially for folks who have very, you know, like you, having a, like a particularity about what horror you can watch. <laughs> right. I think that's always really interesting and exciting. And especially for this movie, there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to talk about Death Becomes Her with you. I love that. But I mean, primarily because it's camp month, right? Yes. We've been talking about this all month long. This is going to be kind of wrapping up everything because it's such a wanting, special movie. I wanted to watch this with you. I mentioned wanting to watch with this with you the first time I was here. Yeah. So... I think it's just very, it's very nice that we get some, some closure there. Yes. Yeah. So we're coming full circle within, yeah. within our year, coming up to our one year anniversary. It is a very mm. special time. So to get into it, I do want to get your thoughts on camp first. This is a really important part of it. Yeah. So for this month, I guess I've been looking at what is camp? We've already talked about a lot of the different definitions uh, from Sontag to the kind of contemporary look. Everyone thinks it's something different. I was watching the video that the Met Gallery put together for their their whole camp thing the in Met 2019. Gala. The Met Well, it's the gala, and they had an exhibition at the, right, the right, museum, too. Right. And they're like, well, it could be defined as anything. I'm like, no, no. but it's more... I think it's more particular than that. Maybe not. So I kind of want to get I each think... guest's thoughts on, like, what actually is camp for yeah. you? What situates it? I love, I love that. Honestly, I think camp, once I realized that it was a very specific tone, a very specific aesthetic, I grew up believing that I was weird. Mm-hmm. And not like special weird, just like weird weird. <laughs> like I felt like often my tastes didn't align with my peers. A lot of the media that was being consumed in the early aughts felt like it wasn't really speaking to what I felt as a strange child yeah like as a weird little girl as a as a weird kid a weird teenager presently a weird adult yeah that's such a great that's such a that's like trying to describe color mm. <laughs> I mean it's like I think actually until I you read like live in it no <laughs> I don't know about if I live in it but it, it was once I recognized camp, once once I was exposed to camp, camp it was 
oh, there it is. Yes. Here I am. It was, it's comforting. Camp to me is like recognition of the absurd and obscene, you know, in contrast to, to sort of the blase reality that we live. Things are just inherently absurd. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring place, as we all know. I see. I don't even know (laughs) if it was that, like, because I didn't know I was queer in different, in different, like, aspects of my queerness. I think there was a, you know, very slow domino effect, right? Like, right. I remember I couldn't even use the word, I was afraid to use the word bisexual, like, because that was an implication of, of labeling myself. It was a damning label to have. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't use the word bisexual. I didn't even use the word bicurious. I think I just said curious for a very long time, which I mean it just I mean, I'm so, curious. I'm to, curious about a lot of things. I'm curious currently. I'm, I'm just like curious I'm, a, I'm curious about the world and yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad label to have. <laughs> but but like just just trying to avoid the spot onness of, mm-hmm. of just saying what things were. Camp to me was so comforting when I was figuring out what kind of person I was and what kind of person I wanted to be. Was there any experience that because, you felt like this This was well, when I knew yeah, well, camp in that way? Well, I don't know. I think there were a couple of things. I felt like I couldn't just be absurd. I couldn't just be ridiculous. And, and camp was like permission to be ridiculous. It was the obscene was very obscene. The ridiculous was very ridiculous. And mm-hmm. I honestly think my, probably my first exposure to camp was Bugs Bunny cartoons. Yes. And um, <laughs> specifically, I, yes. specifically, I rewatched them recently because I was like, man, I just need that like kind of just like cozy, like absurdity, just like sincere absurdity. Just a nice cozy bunny hug. A nice cozy bunny hug. Um, <laughs> Recently, I rewatched the ones that, like, I realized were very formative to the kind of humor that speaks to me, which is the Barber of Seville. Mm. I think it's called the Bunny of Seville or something in the cartoon, and they do a section from the Marriage of Figaro. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And then there's one where Bugs Bunny is 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 annoying an opera singer. Mm-hmm. And so he dresses up as the, Leopold the conductor, and and makes the opera singer sing the roof mm-hmm. off. It occurred to me like that was probably my first exposure to camp. And then secondly was I probably watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail way too early, mm-hmm. like earlier than you really should be letting a child watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail, considering there's, like, prostitutes and all Children sorts of it. really no. awful, like... <laughs> I watched it pretty young. There was a point where I think I could probably have quoted that movie, like, word for word, breath for breath, mm. with, with my siblings. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, this is, this is absurd. This is hilarious. Oh, and, you know, like, early internet, albino black sheep, early mm. YouTube videos, Charlie the Unicorn, the sort mm. of like mm-hmm. it's funny because it it doesn't it's absurd. It didn't feel like it was pandering. It didn't feel like it was like, hey kids, it was like, here it is. So the, like the whimsy, the absurdity the was whimsy a and the absurdity. Oh, that was a huge goal. I think that's like a vital part of my personality now, I think. The the joy in absurdity is what I find so attractive about camp Mm -hmm. that it is so sincerely absurd. It's not apologetic. It is authentic. And it's so funny because I don't think I could have described camp or realized that that's what I love. That's what I crave. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of media that I am so instantly drawn to uh, until I read the Susan Sontag essay really not that long ago. But more on that essay. Right. Check out our essay. Right. Yeah. I love camp. It just, it's so comforting. It's so comforting. I love it too. Because and of the, because it doesn't mean you any harm. Yeah. Most people. Even when it's, even, like camp, even in being ridiculous, like because it's ridiculous, it it's not trying to scare you, really. It's just trying to be ridiculous. Yeah. 
and it has, it has no point other than ridiculousness. Yeah, which I think is why Death Becomes Her works so well for me. It was probably one of my first experiences, uh, actually, like with camp or recognizing some campiness about it, because I was six when this movie came out, and I think I saw it on VHS. If we all remember the VHS days of the '90s, so I was probably I remember, seven. I remember VHS. Well, you you might, but not everyone listening will. Who knows? They could. But I did. <laughs> watch it when I was seven. I was very obsessed with this movie. So much so, I asked my mom about this recently and she was, anyway. But I <laughs> I love this movie so much that we bought like a full-size no, stand. No, I want to hear you asked your mother D about of the this. Mother. Well, this is, this is what I'm getting okay, into. Okay, okay, okay. No, when I was a kid, I watched this movie, we rented it like multiple times. I, like, I, I don't know, we never bought it. Or, Maybe when I was a little bit older. I don't know why. We just kept running it because I loved it. And then my mom bought me a standee from the video store because they were getting rid of it, like with Bruce Willis in the middle, Meryl yeah, Streep yeah. with her head turned back, and him holding the the little candelabra. Oh, a po- like a poster. Through her, yes. But like life-size, full-size Oh, like a cardboard poster, cutout. Cardboard. You're kidding. Yes, that was in my basement for a few years. Oh, my God. No, I asked my mom recently. That's... I was like, why did you buy this why did you let me get this thing it's ridiculous she's like well you wanted it you like that movie why not i was like okay well thanks mom it's very nice of you you know what's funny i think life-size cardboard cutouts i didn't realize there was a name for them standees yeah standees Mm-hmm. you're standing they're standing <laughs> you're standing they're standing they're standing that was one of those things that i always thought was very expensive very fancy mm-hmm. if so fancy. i remember i remember one of my friends in grade school had a standee of Legolas mm-hmm. from Lord of the Rings. I think it was Legolas. And I was I was like, oh that's so cool. That's so fancy. What a gadget. How did you <laughs> find the money for that? Right, exactly. <laughs> they were probably what, like three bucks tops? Yeah, usually even less than that. It just depends. Because a lot of times, you know, they're the nature for... of the standee. Yeah. It depends on if they can be sent back to like the production company or not. There's a lot. That doesn't really matter. The economics of standees is what I came here to talk about. Um, But to this day, I'm sad I didn't hold on to it. Right. But part of the reason I was really into it was also Goldie Hawn. Mm. This was also the phase where I was obsessed with Goldie Hawn. I I love Goldie Hawn in the 90s. House sitter. Say you're gay without saying you're gay. (laughs) Bird on a wire. Overboard. All of it. And this movie, of course, was like the pinnacle. This is prime this is, I think this Goldie Hawn. This is the only Goldie Hawn movie I've seen. Oh my goodness. I think. You're missing out. I just, it just wasn't. The other thing, it, it occurs to me, the other, my other exposure to camp that I realized was like, that's what it was, was worryingly RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm. Early, early seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. I wrote my college admissions essay on season four of RuPaul's Drag okay. Race. I did. Yeah. I did. I just thought it was, I thought it was like, to me, I didn't know any trans people mm-hmm. in real life. I, you know, like I, I had queer friends on the internet, but like, it just wasn't something that I was as exposed to as I am now. It was like a very new concept to me. The idea that like these people could be outrageous on purpose and mm-hmm. be praised, be, to be praised for it, to be, that it was like, the starting point mm-hmm. that like just just base level ridiculousness was the default like that blew my freaking mind yeah and then i was also exposed to rocky horror picture show when i was like 17 and that really like blew the door open i think for as far as like my love of of absurdity as a means of like catharsis specifically yeah and just that kind of overlapping i taking all those things together of yeah drag gender play expression happening through these different mediums yeah. is really interesting to me and applying it to this kind of movie which is not queer necessarily on the surface of it i'm gonna get no, i saw your face took, you can't took, all see no Kyle's i took face, so but, many notes i took so many notes but this was the way i wanted to enter so we talked a little bit about it as we were watching but i, I wanted to ask do you feel like this is a drag movie i don't think it is inherently a drag movie okay i think that but they are doing drag i think they are doing it. drag i think they are doing drag simply because of the absurdity of the way that the gender roles exist in mm-hmm. this film 
film. It's a film. It's not a movie. It's a film. It um, a film. <laughs> film. It's, a, it's so crazy. It came up while we were watching this movie. Bruce Willis had just done Die Hard. Yeah. He was like a, he was a big action star. Yeah. At this yeah. point. This brawny muscle dude. He was a very Duder McDuderson. Yes. And that's what people want. He was quite macho, as they say. Do they do they say that Who? still? I'm sure some people. Them. <laughs> the them. They slash them. The them. <laughs> yeah, he was. And so like what So to see him in this role that he's sort of this like emasculated, stuffy just this like nerdy I don't, twerp. I don't, nerdy twerp nerdy works twerp. for me. I don't want to say beta because that's like not a term I agree with at all. Yeah. But like it wouldn't have like in nineteen ninety two, that would not have been a thing. It would have been a thing. Yeah. But in it also in its own kind of masculine way, right? Of like if you're a loser dude, like it's still a very male it is way very, to be. Yeah, and the way and that he's, he's still, stylized with the mustache and the, the glasses. Stylized and, and he's and he's got a drinking problem and there's still something that's very like honestly there were moments that reminded me of like, you know, an old school scientist you know like in, in jurassic park and mm-hmm. in, oh gosh and some of the living dead movies a couple of them where it's like like yeah, that yes. kind of scientist or like the professor with the cardigan yeah you got the those with cardigans the, the professor with the cardigan it's you know it's similar energy to brad and rocky horror picture show yes. Yes. you know at the sort of at the at the tail end of the film where it's like oh eureka you know and big it's very brad energy big brad energy well <laughs> sort of so it's just it's so funny because it's it is exactly the same as you know in Tu wong fu which is mm-hmm. one of my favorite movies of all time oh yeah you did draw a connection the drag the drag of the it drag, all the drag of it all you know it's the same i think it is the same it is the, it is no different than the transformation Patrick Swayze undergoes as Vita Boehm mm-hmm. into Wong Fu that that we see Bruce Willis you know as a sort of stuffy geeky guy this sort of like mm-hmm. no skills with women and, and whatever yeah and who comes across particularly older than he actually is he was about 36 37 at the time the of characters this are supposed movie. to be in their 50s and he's like hysterical. supposed to be 50 years old he's got a lot going on He's got a lot going on, and like that is drag to me. And then yeah. you have Meryl oh, then you have two super hyper femme, super hyper femme, and you know they're being so mindful of their silhouettes and the way mm-hmm. that they sort of change outfits to fit the exact moment that they're always dressed. You know, very particularly, uh, Goldie Hawn wears. I totally forgot about this when she's sneaking around. She's wearing like. A Versace leather jacket, it looks like, yeah. and a beret, and she's got sunglasses on, and she's got heels. Like, it's fashion. Yes. It's fashion. This is a high fashion. It movie. is. Like, more so than I remember. Yeah. Because you think of the I iconic. Never really thought about it. You, you as think a of, child. <laughs> you, think, you think about the red dress and the white dress when they fight each other, but like mm-hmm. beyond that, and you think about Isabella Rossellini in the you know, tits out, covered in jewels. Tits out, the jewels. <laughs> Is that a song? Dream lady. I don't know. It's a song now. She's living her best life. She looks gorgeous. Yeah, Isabella Rossellini. I want to wait In that the... very, like, 1920s She look looks too. like, she her, looks like, I mean. German expressionism it's look so going on. It's so good, this, like, opulent sort of art deco, yes. you know, flapper. Thing it just it's it's opulent. I think that's what happened in the nineties. Maybe that's why nineties has that weird marble. There was like this touch of Art Deco coming back into a resurgence for like. Well, it's interesting because because the texture like the weird marble. It's so interesting though because in these these settings we have marble. I just noticed how smooth all of the textures were behind Mm -hmm. these like very smooth plastered uh, women yeah that were um you know quaffed and stuff right so this the aesthetic of everything right the, the aesthetic high fashion of it was very, the high felt very very the, specific the smoothness of the so smoothness much of it, of it. i mean this, yeah. is such a, this is a pretty high budget movie right for 1992 this was one of the movies by ilm before they did jurassic park so oh this was, right before the, okay yeah this came out the year before jurassic park so this is kind of test piloting some of the 
technology that they used to make that movie. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, you I, can tell it's right. crunchy. She's crunchy, it is crunchy. with it is <laughs> the crunchy. digital effects. It's but crunchy, like said, but like in you a way that it, right? well, I something that that came up right was to me was um like the effects I saw you see in Beetlejuice, mm-hmm. which was another another one that I just, which we've I, covered before. Oh, oh, you have. Mm-hmm. Nuts! So I make love the it. comparison, though. I love it. I love Beetlejuice, but you know the absurd effects in Beetlejuice like are not meant to be realistic because the circumstances are not realistic. Right. So when Alec Baldwin twists his face into a you know beak, it's like yeah, it looks cartoony because it's a cartoony thing. Like you want yeah. to talk about the camp that movie, incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, really, just ridiculous. Uh, not even just Catherine Conker. Oz character like top to toe. Oh, Catherine and like, Hahn, Catherine, Catherine O'Hara. O'Hara. Oh my God! I mean, remake, bring Catherine Hahn into. She it. could do it. Yeah, she could do Catherine O'Hara's part. They the can... Catherines could switch. I yes. Don't know. Or it was Moira Rose all along. I see so much of that too. Like that's what I liked about Beetlejuice as a child too. It's a lot of the things I liked about Death Becomes Her. So I think the camp. Quality Her of neck it. getting twisted around it is, of yes. course, not realistic. So, of course, it's and not going to look movie, realistic because it's not a realistic circumstance. Because it's not realistic, I think it didn't scare me as a child, too. It took me until maybe recently when I'm like, I really want to cover this movie to even, like, call it a horror movie. Because I love I'm horror so much. Sure. And I've always we? loved horror. But then I was like, but this movie never really felt quite like a horror movie to me in the in the same ways that, like, when I got really into horror, it did. But I always like creepy, weird stuff like this. So I'm like, it fits, it fits in my canon of horror. There for, are elements of it that feel for the disgust factor a bit macabre. Yes, but for the most part, it's not really. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny, right? Because this is we're you're a horror podcast, and I'm here. But <laughs> and you're here, and you're here. We're here. We're talking about this movie, so it must be a horror film. But like, I don't know if I necessarily yes. would be like. Oh, I love horror movies. And we've I've said that. I'm not a person that's like, mm-hmm. oh, I love horror movies. Because I don't know if I would, but I don't know if I would necessarily classify this as horror. And I think horror, like, the play that I wrote, mm-hmm. technically speaking, contains horror. I bill it as a workplace comedy horror. Yes. Like, it's not the first word, right? Similarly. You want to prepare with comedy over horror. Similar yeah, to the Yeah, well, and that's how I, that's how I felt when, when I was sitting here talking about uh, Little Monsters. It's a comedy mm-hmm. before it's a horror, I think. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think this is a comedy with horror. It's a dark comedy with horror elements, but I don't know if I would call it a horror film, mm-hmm. personally. Which is perhaps, you know, like, well, I like it, so it must not be horror, and I can recognize oh, how kind of blanket that is. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm coming in from the, the other direction where I'm like, I like it, so it must be horror. <laughs> so I, no, and I can recognize like. So we'll come to the middle and say it's at least worth discussion on a I horror can movie recognize, podcast. I can recognize that it is a blanket thing to say. Yeah, but I think what makes it work so well is just that it does fit into this. I don't know this weird trajectory of looking at the macabre or looking at murder mysteries and things like that, right? Like you said, it ties into Beetlejuice. We also made a lot of connections to Clue mm-hmm. that came out in the, the 80s. Music, the music reminded me of Clue. The, the sort music, of like, yes, this the, heightened the aptly violin. Timed, I love it. The, arguably, there are elements of noir that that is that are borrowed in Death Becomes. Mm-hmm. What really does it to me is the... Oh, yeah. There's sort of two things. And it's funny because those things are, are the reason why this movie is so endearing, partially. The first is sort of the aptly timed rain and lightning. Mm-hmm. Of like, oh, I'm saying something thr- thrilling. Lightning. Oh, go find someone your own age. Rain and lightning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, over here. Yeah, I mean, just the aptly placed lightning mm-hmm. in different parts of the movie feels very clue. It feels, it's noir. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's like, of course there's lightning, right? And then the other thing is the absurdity of the disproportionate reactions to things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it has the cartoon vibe. The it, cartoon vibes of Beetlejuice in a, a glamoured up package. Yeah. And I think the cartoon part of it translates to something that I love absolutely about these actors is the, the line readings. Just every line reading throughout this entire film is sometimes more iconic than what they're saying. It's, <laughs> uh, uh, it, 
And it's funny, right? Because there is something incredibly self-aware with uh, about this movie. And that thing is Bruce Willis. Mm -hmm. Like, even even though his character is like, for Bruce Willis, like, is very draggy. You're like, oh, that's Bruce Willis under there. Under the, the glasses and the, you know, I think they've padded him a little bit and whatever. He has so many great, like, lines that are appropriately reactive mm -hmm. to the absurdity of what's going on. Oh. But it's so heightened that oh, he's but, like... But he is, at times, the audience, and I think mm -hmm. that's what's so incredibly endearing about his performance. Yeah. Like, he's kind of the only sane man at times. Yeah. But, like, he does he does go crazy. Yeah. He's trying to keep it together. But he does try yeah. to keep it together. He, he's the only... Of, of the trio, he's the only one that doesn't completely succumb to the promise of, like, eternal youth and beauty. Mm -hmm. Right? What really stuck me was, like, Meryl Streep gets her finger pricked, and she goes, Ah! Really? What are you, nuts? Really? But, like, just, just so the disproportionate reactions, I think, yeah, felt feels very cartoony, feels very yeah. theatrical. Yeah, I mean, I, God, watching this back. There's even times where, like, Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep are harmonizing with some of their lines. It's so, it's very funny. Like, when they're trying to get yes. Ernest to paint them up again. Yes. Right? No, there is there is this sort of rhythmic musical quality of a lot of the dialogue, actually. Yeah. And it's, it's very strange how it lasts. But it it starts that way. We start with a musical, right? That's we have Madeline right. Ashton in a musical. I, Look, gosh, I let's, me. Start, let's start I at the beginning because I... Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what this movie's about, because right? Because I, in that beginning, in that beginning sequence, I realized, like, it really is so clearly foreshadowing. It gives us a very clear picture of who she is and what she cares about in the most, like, unnecessary way possible. Yeah. Like, we didn't really need, theoretically, in order to illustrate that, the char that a character is vain and loves mm -hmm. herself and really only cares about how pretty she is and wants people to tell her how pretty she is. We don't really need a gigantic Broadway number with, you know, bedazzled bellboys. But that's Lifting what we get. Yes. But that's what we get. And we get the staircase, which I, I didn't notice. Oh, um, which, yeah, she starts. And I well, she it, starts in a mirror. You notice a lot more of the mirror imagery you were I saying did, this time. I did. And noticed, then she walks on a staircase. So it's, it's all... I, I, I wish I could dissect, like, the, the use of mirrors in this film, but I don't think there's anything to dissect. You think it's pretty on I, its surface? I think it's, it's vanity. It's, it's vanity. Yeah. This movie's about vanity. Who knew? Who and it's guessed? like, it's not really hitting us over, it doesn't really hit us over the head with it because it's too busy showing us all of the ridiculous lengths these women will go to be beautiful. Yeah. But... The theme is very much on the surface because that's... The type of the people they is, are. The theme is B is what happens when you're totally on the surface. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that deep. No. Hey oh, that's, guns. And that's what it needs to be. That's yeah. I mean that's also part of the camp of it, right? The camp also lives at this surface level. It can have a lot of deeper meanings and resonance. That's resonances. what I love about camp. It means exactly what you think it means. Yeah. It's not trying to hide anything from you. It's not trying to be subtle. That is not the that is not uh, it doesn't have time. Mm. Camp's not have time to be subtle. No. We just got to jump in and go with it. Yeah, we Camp can... is patient. Camp is kind. Let's say uh, yes, it is. <laughs> Let's set up the, what happens in this movie from that start. I don't want to necessarily go through every single no, beat for no, beat moment. But, but, just, but, but, but I, we do set up who wrote, Madeline is right away. But I wrote one of the audience members leaving, the, leaving her performance mm. says, talk about waking the dead. Mm. And I just, I really appreciate the foreshadowing this movie does yeah really it's not subtle foreshadowing it's sort of like ah stairs yeah That's and right. it's interesting how the movie starts in 1978 most of the movie takes place in 1992 so there's a 14-year gap but even in 1978 people were also having that conversation they also already thought madeline was washed up in 1978 right she is also already starting to worry about aging and yeah. how she looked and that's yeah. why she partially wanted to get with Ernest, who was a plastic surgeon yeah. at the time. So there is this thing of like, she's always been this way. It's always been yeah. 
ingrained socially or from her own personal And then at the end of the movie, they're still equally obsessed with... Although it's interesting, right? Because when we meet Goldie Hawn's character, Helen, she's kind of like mousy. You sort of get the sense that like Madeline was like the pretty one growing up. And like she's like the smart book. Helen's like the smart one that likes books. Yeah. You know? So her motivations are a little bit, it feels silly to try and analyze this, but it's like Madeline Ashton's character arc is so clear because it doesn't really change. It just mm-hmm. intensifies. Right? Yes. Like all she wants is to be beautiful and for everyone to tell her how beautiful she is. Right. And that's really all we see of her the whole time. Right. Whereas Goldie Hawn has an interesting arc that we sort of start to sympathize with and then she disappears and then comes back and then she's obsessed with being pretty too. So it's a little, or she's obsessed with vengeance and then she also which wants to stick. Which then makes her obsessed vague. with being pretty. So it's just, it's really, her arc is not as clear, which is a funny, which is such a, it just, yeah. it, seems, it seems like a fruitless criticism for this film because that's not really the point. No, it's not, but it is still there. I think it's interesting too, the idea of change, growth. Do Does a character need to go through that to make the movie interesting or worthwhile like yeah. no i feel like by refusing to change madeline's behavior drives this movie right like the refusal to change says something about why they're in a worse situation right like she could yeah. have lived that quiet life that liesel told her to live is right. rosalini looking gorgeous as Iconic, always looking so, um, so good like unbelievably good she could have lived that life she could have pulled back, but she was like, oh, now I've got, you know, youth forever. I've got invincibility, whatever it is she thought she had which worked against her. And I think that obsession though is also what happens with Helen is the obsession is both things, right? It's jealousy, but it's also just like anger and like the yeah, revenge. Yeah, it's jealous. It's jealousy. It's vengeance really is like what she... But then she found herself in the same shoes as Madeline. Yeah. And that's why. And then suddenly she, yeah. That's why they flipped. So I think there is a change there. But like you said, I also don't know that it that's That's, why, that's why Goldie Hawn flips. Yeah. At no point does Madeline Ashton flip. Yeah. But yeah, I nor, think the flip, the flip happens once, once she can no longer enact vengeance. Mm-hmm. Like once she can't have what she wants, she's like, well, I need to stay this way so that I'll still win over her and there's still this like like at the end they're still bitching and, and being catty towards each mm-hmm. other even though they're you know clearly sort of rotting at their own expense right and this uh, was a time before frenemy was even you know a neologism so. but that's the but thing though there is something there is something very there is something very gay about their back and forth mm. they sound like two yeah, they do feel like you could put drag queens in this these roles and it would still um, work. True, two grouchy old ladies who only have each other. Like, that is... Well, they that's what they become. Well, right. But, like, that's a dynamic that you see in the, in the queer community. Mm-hmm. There is this notion of, like, dare we be deep today? Yes. Go for it. Darest, Make an attempt. Darest we? I don't know. What do you think about, like, gay people in the 90s? Right, being this real, very real, tangible fear of of decay, of being of fading away, mm. of outliving friends and loved ones. It is an interesting. It's a thought. I don't know if it's a fully baked thought that I'm having right now. Right. Well, I think you but, know. I think it's in, a but good. In, but in contrast, you know, compare next to these women that are so obsessed with beauty but it are in fact totally falling apart yeah and have no one and you know are not loved by anyone and so they're grouchy old ladies that have each other and i think yeah. i wonder if that feeling that was i wonder if that feeling was recognizable by in particular gay men during this time mm, probably to a degree even even if it was subconscious and thought about later i mean i don't know maybe we can look up a thesis on death becomes her as aids metaphor We'll I, don't work know on if, it, I don't know if that's but, a fair metaphor to like the you know complexity of that 
of that existence. No, not at like, all. But I think through so a horror lens, we've moment. brought we've brought it up a lot when we've covered eighties movies, especially ones that deal with body horror. Right. And you know, as okay, so I'm not queer people running this I'm not podcast. Completely, like, I'm not completely grasping at straws. No, that's no. Good to know. So I think it is interesting, but I think that's that's what camp can allow for too. Yeah, and then and then and then of course, how like, do we explore some of our even fears? though it's heightened that's right like someone watching this movie like me as a six-year-old the fear of death isn't going to come across to no. me right but it's heightened if you are having an experience where it's like i could be killed or i could lose someone if or it I was could... circumstantially relevant for the audience this was intended for right which is adults right <laughs> well well that's maybe a separate I don't know. That's a separate thing. Maybe I was a weird kid. I don't know. I, but. <laughs> I hope you. I hope you were weird. You were a weird kid. I think that's the only way we are possibly friends now is mm. that we were both weird kids. I think so. if I was watching this and everyone, everyone I trust was a weird kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Crying at baby psychology books. You know, <laughs> really? Or children's psychology? I don't know. That's I, crazy. It got me upset. I love that. <laughs> I don't know. I was reading child psychology books. I also is a question, but that's the narrative that's arriving. No, and then <laughs> that, 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 that they are, you know, even before they're both dead, right? They're still Quite chasing, even though they are, even before they are physically dead, they are completely unhinged, completely, you know, jealousy and revenge and vengeance driven, mm-hmm. all while looking fabulous which i can which it, it makes perfect sense to me why that would resonate with with queer people and why it resonates with i mean so much of this feels very has echoes in in queer culture even like with how quippy it is and mm-hmm. and and sort of the different sort of absurd uh, aesthetic choices yeah it's styled at an 11 i mean it is a very it is, it is very high pitched if that's what we're gonna yeah to put it into like a a musical like it is always at 11 i think for the very beginning it doesn't let up it's always very wild even in kind of the softer moments like these characters are ridiculous and out of their minds yeah i mean but the reactions are big and the violence is big and the the composition even of Mm -hmm. each frame is big you know like this is a it's interesting to again revisit it more intelligently because this is a very well, like aesthetically well crafted movie. Mm-hmm. The third act is a lot of stuff that I, I feel like is sort of unnecessary and just like mm. why does any of this? You feel like it's a, a bit spinny when they're trying to get spinny. Ernest to take it the doesn't potion totally, too. The party thing, the fact that there's a party feels really like out of nowhere and sort of unearned and like mm. it just is felt like a a very not even delightfully illogical just straight up like it just doesn't make any like incongruous Mm. i guess it's in the same movie but it's like why are we here why are we here like it feels like where are we here Uh, you know what living with this movie for 30 years i feel like (laughs) makes me not question any of i'm like this stuff, it's that's exactly very, how it unfolds. It's a, that, it's a again, very, the fairy tale, the... It is a like, very I don't have to strange... It. I expect it. Well, but, like, I also think... But you felt it. I also think... Those things are strange. But, but here's the thing. Which other, you know, cult camp classic horror movie that I also think has a confusing and unnecessary third act that I love? Uh, Rocky Horror. Oh. So it doesn't, it, doesn't, <laughs> just, it doesn't discredit anything. It's just like... You know, just just watching it more intelligently, more like analytically, I guess, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, I just we're gonna watch a concert and have a glass of wine, and we're like sitting here taking notes. Of, you know, it's a different different watching like watching it with a critical oh, sort of yeah, lens. Yeah. I'm I'm realizing, oh, the third act is just a lot of mishmash. Right, the third act becomes there's a no bit way. How do I articulate broad. this? It's a podcast. I don't know. I don't know how you articulate clapping like, mishmash cla- wibbly I'm wobbly not, i'm not clapping fingers. i'm tangling my hands together how is tangling their hands in a just... mishmash of i don't know a hodgepodge, hodgepodge a porridge a porridge i'm gonna find it like, i'm gonna i'm gonna find know. the i'm gonna find the right articulation at like 3 a.m and i'm 
furious. Well, call me, record it, then I can download <laughs> the recording no! and just like insert it into the episode. No. I'm, gonna no. Be, I'm just going to be furious. I, that's going to be my life. I agree. I think it loses some of like its thematic drive at that point. Like once... It's out of momentum. Once Ernest has decided to leave them, which I do, I like the part where he's like, well, we have to respect his choice. Let's drug him. Uh, excellent excellent turn Christ. of events just immediately <laughs> so i think i think that there could have been something about i don't know i guess i like the escalation that like we do need him to live forever so we can get this but there could have been a maybe a more straightforward yeah to it took it took a little too long to get where it needed to be or yeah maybe the, for the circumstances to be as high up although i really do i really do love that like choosing between eternal life and therefore being effectively enslaved by these crazy women mm-hmm. and falling to his death. He's like, okay, I'm going to drop the thing. I'm just going by. And he lived. Yeah. And it's great. That's pretty tops. That's pretty like, yeah, it's pretty baller, but it's, did you need all of that to get all the way up there? And he started, he started running away from them. And then he goes up. Why does he go up to the roof? And then he keeps going. It's like, what did you think was going to be up there? But you know, were you going to like, you going to fly away? Yes. He was going to fly away. He was going to do some, some diehard. With his powers. Some John McClane shit. Oh my God. He had seen. He's in a he parallel. Saw Die Hard. He, he saw Die Hard. The same universe as and Bruce Willis. And he was like, Willis. oh, if that guy, Bruce Willis, can do it, I, also Bruce Willis, can do it. And then he does it. He falls. He falls. He falls, but not to his death. Because he, he dies in the coda 37 he years later. He falls to... Which is actually in the future from us. So the future that death right. becomes her foretold has yet to come. It's uh, in we 2029. It's in 2029. Very excited about it. Um, Thrilled. I mean, I'm sure. I can't wait for the 80s power suits and the funky hats. Oh, that's what you're, you think it's going to be like? In 2029? According to this film. We got seven years, folks. 80s. Awful 80s power suits. And, uh, you know, funky, funky fascinators. That's actually not too far off. I really liked, I really liked actually the hat that. Madeline was wearing at the end. Like, I just, I love this sort of sculptural fascinator yes. thing. I think they're, they're delicious. Oh, we didn't even get into all the hats. They're so funny. That yeah. hat, the one that Isabella Rossellini's wearing right at the end with the 20s. She has like that. The, the head, the 20s the headpiece. headpiece. Yeah. Um, the, veil, the red veil. And that was beret. so crazy. We have to talk about this because, because Goldie Hawn has her like sneaking around outfit where she's got the black beret and the sort of Versace-esque. The leather, uh, leather yeah, jacket the leather and the pants. heels and leggings. And then and then she changes into a similar into outfit. Into a separate outfit with her red top that mm-hmm. she gets shot in the abdomen. And it's a black pillbox hat with a red veil. Yes. It's just it's like incredible. A beekeeper veil. She wears it, it, but it's so good. Like it's fashion. She wears it for all of five seconds. She wears it for five seconds, it's which is like, like of course I forgot about it because what an yeah. incredibly striking image to see this woman. And we just see it as a, like it, it looks is very like editorial. Cuff- it was very editorial, but it. I love that there are like, all these editorial magazine like shoot moments in the movie. Fantastic. Right, the movie doesn't stop for them either. It's not like oh, we're just gonna like stand aside it's no just as we like, never do a male gaze hey, pan down or any of those things but hey we, they're in it they're in their own editorial moment now no yeah it respects the women even though these women are awful it still respects them enough there's like, no real male gaze no it's all very i mean at no point do we get like a weird well loop. i mean we got isabella rosalini coming naked out of a pool i mean we're lingering on that booty speaking as a lesbian <laughs> Speaking as a lesbian, I really appreciate The male that. gaze is okay if you're a lesbian watching. The male gaze is okay <laughs> if you're a lesbian and it's Isabella Rossellini wearing fringe in the pool. Yes. I just thought that was so funny that she's like, oh, here, I'm basically naked, but let me take it off anyway and put on a robe. What? Right. It's, it's over the top to... It's... So over the top that it's almost subverting the male gaze, perhaps. If I will, we and it's like that's like, it's like not really the point, right? No, because right. Even when even when the characters are sexy, like it is absurd, right? Because the moment Isabella Rossellini's character starts to be sexy, it 
becomes like unhinged, like insane. Oh, like, she's unhinged that whole Like yes. evil, like like you know the witch from Chronicles of Narnia, mm-hmm. like unhinged, the sort of the sort of. Uh, uh, she's uh, like basically wearing something that the witch from Chronicles I, of Narnia this, wears. Right, this like sort of, right, this sort of like psychotic beauty, mm-hmm. this sort of like crazy sexy thing. It's so good. Yeah, like it is really like the line between. This movie, it's so funny because the opinion about women who pursue beauty above all else, like, is so clear in this in this movie. And yet, all I can think about is how they look. Yes. <laughs> like, you've actually, you've gone so far that you've turned back around the other way. Right. I'm convinced. I this want, critique makes me want to look at beautiful women. This critique makes me want to go to the grocery store wearing just beaded necklaces yes. on my titties. Yeah, it's really hard to to do, but it's also acceptable, right? Because it's camp, it's acceptable. You, you can live with that contradiction because because, it's, because, because you're self aware. The awareness of the absurd. Yeah, because yeah. I can I can say honestly, like. When I wear something ridiculous as a human being, you know, I'm like, oh, it's fun because it's ridiculous. Yes. But, and you're doing it. Sometimes you're doing it as a performance. Sometimes uh, you're doing it for yourself. But just, you know, sometimes for myself. I got a t shirt at the thrift store the other day that looks like a bottle of Heinz tomato ketchup. Mm. And I thought, I was like, that's camp. I'm, I'm getting it. Yeah. So I have it now. Rolling down the Andy Warhol thing. Not even. <laughs> well, I don't even think it's that. I think it's funny that it's like a, ketchup t-shirt and we're in chicago where very famously ketchup is frowned upon not banned if you didn't know frowned upon ketchup was outlawed in 1956 in all of chicago that's not true (laughs) that is i want to spread some misinformation oh boy this ain't joe rogan what are we doing oh shit good oh Um, boy i i mean i feel like my chicago listeners will tell you what if you took off on what if you took off your face right now and it was a mask and then it was Joe Rogan and then you took off that mask and it was a lizard underneath? You think a lizard would go through all that trouble just to watch Death Becomes Her with you? <laughs> I don't know. I like lizards. People should. I feel like people know that I like lizards and so lizards know. I like lizards too. I like them and so lizard people should be welcome into my home. Oh, if you God. are a lizard person, you are welcome to my apartment. Oh, wow. Thank you. I think you're gonna America. <laughs> Thank you, America. You're gonna live to regret that one. I'm gonna have well, a party we'll with lizard people. It'll be great. Oh, you bring snacks. My We're goodness. good. This movie has gotten us in a silly place, which is good. It's very That's silly what place. I was hoping for. It's very silly place. Versus our other options, which oh, I don't know what it man. brought us to. This, oh, the silly place. Man, maybe not. Maybe um, not. What really did it for me? Like what I appreciated. In addition to the repetition of the use of mirrors mm-hmm. and the and the sort of the, the different sort of beautiful capsule aesthetic moments, the very quick little aesthetic moments, really was I I keep going back to Bruce Willis as Ernest these very genuine reactions to absurd circumstances, mm-hmm. which occurs to me like as a huge backbone of like my own sense of humor is like a, a genuine reactions to absurd circumstances. Yeah, and like very grounded, grounded in in a in a in a truth of his character. Mm-hmm. When uh, when they said, "Oh, your wife's in the morgue," and she's he says, "The morgue, she'll be furious." Yeah. Yes, it's so good. Everything, everything about it. I mean, yeah. And every time I watch it, I'm like, "Who is my favorite?" I don't know. Sometimes it's Meryl. Sometimes it's Goldie. Sometimes it's Bruce. The other, they're all working at peak. I want to talk about uh, the other thing, like what sticks with me in this movie specifically are the intensity of Goldie Hawn's like almost ghoulish, like almost white blue eyes that she has in moments. Towards the end, these women just look otherworldly. Like, it's so good. How many times can I say it's so good, but it's so, it's so good. It's the horror. There, that's the horror. Is that the horror? I'm going to accept it just on the use of colored contact lenses alone. I think there are, 
I don't know because a woman gets a hole shot in her stomach. Let's do. Let's yeah, go there are horrifying things that happen in this movie. The falling down the stairs did. Oh, that neck crack. I mean, part of it is that uncanny too. Like the bad digital effects kind of makes that you. moment worse. It like, does. It's it not does. real, but her neck. It does, bends, and she goes, and, and she goes. She goes to the doctor. I forgot about this Something part. Looks she off. goes to the doctor. She comes to the doctor, and then the doctor leaves the room and says, I'm going to get another opinion. And then the doctor is dead from cardiac arrest or something. The doctor something. had a heart attack. I guess we don't attack? know if he's dead for sure. We don't know if they but bring like, him back or not. He's pretty much dead. Yeah. Like, that's sort of the implication. So it's just such a funny. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely horror elements. Like, right. I, will, I will see that this is a horror movie, but because it is camp, well, it's not scary. Yeah, it's and not I wanna, scary. I want to just, I want to differentiate between a scary movie and a horror movie because they are not yes. always the same. Yes. I horror had a, lives. I had someone tell me that my script was not scary. And I was like, it's not supposed to be. <laughs> sorry. Like, do you want it to, they, they said, they said to me, so this is a horror, you said this is a horror play. Mm-hmm. And I said, Yes, it's a, it's a horror, it's a comedy horror or a horror comedy, whatever you want to say about it. And, and they said, well, I wasn't scared. And I was like, okay. <laughs> this is exactly what camp can help us see. This is beautiful. No, Because yes, I, I have it. this quote from Harry Benshoff. They're pulling Monst- up notes. In Monsters in the Closet. It's a book from 1997 about horror movies um, and queerness and camp. Love it. But I think... This is the perfect encapsulation of everything, of our camp months, of movies that aren't scary, uh, why they're still horror and why they still matter. In horror movies specifically, camp may be the life raft queer spectators board in order to save themselves from drowning in the narrative's enforced destruction of the monster queer. Whether or not camp makes the films fall flat, quote unquote, as horror films, they still present the same images of monster queers as such the queer pleasures of the horror film mitigated through camp and identification with the figure of the monster are just as, if not more, important to the film's resumption than is the experience of fear. In other words, it's not scary because we look at the monster queers and we say, oh, that's that's me. That's us. Mm-hmm. That's us. This like outsider that right. that is that is that is insecure. That's like that, that's lonely. That wants to look a certain way. I mean, if you think about actually like how vain the queer population is, in particular queer men. Or is so often it's also this really interesting thing where it's like, yes, I think so, but but I think it's also a I don't know, a stereotype or a judgment. It is a stereotype to an extent, but like I think gay men in particular being obsessed with image Mm -hmm. and the actuality of it are very different. Yes. Are very different. You know, like the sort of effeminate twink sort of obsessed with with i don't know his hair or his makeup or whatever like that's a stereotype created by straight people to to make us seem i don't know weak right Mm -hmm. to make gay people as a as a blanket seem really yeah to to emasculate gay men but it can also be an empowering thing right like if you take that as a if you take that and reclaim it like yes yes, i am a feminist yes i am a feminist yeah but then also, but, but. Well, it's also because of misogyny and we hate women. And all we hate of feminists. Well, so. <laughs> let's, I mean, let's, we don't have time to unpack all I, that. I'm let's trying just, to unpack it all in the moment, right? Just, no, throw away the suitcase. Uh-uh. Yeah. Not today. <laughs> no, but I just wanted to point out that quote and like exactly like what you said is we need to be able to reckon with the way that society sees queer people, but also anyone who's marginalized, right? Like we often see ourselves in the monsters or, well, or like the women in this movie. But like I also if you're a woman wanna... watching this movie, what do you gain from it? Hopefully, I, a, a good laugh, a good laugh at society's box. I mean, I think in. I think to some extent, I mean, it resonates with me as a person that was socialized as a as a that experienced girlhood that has that has experienced womanhood. Like it resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. how about I ask you for one more thing? No, hang on. Look I have up. I have things. No, after okay. that, women truly have unattainable standards mm-hmm. to uphold. Mm-hmm. Like it really, like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, if you do any kind of, if you age, it's, oh, well, you're old. If you get it fixed, it's, oh, well, you know, you're fake. Different factors create these unattainable standards. Mm -hmm. I was just listening to a podcast about 
how the Kardashians have impacted and and sort of uh, mm. obliterated how we have certain beauty standards that are effectively like Afro Latina features, but on a white body and like sort of these unattainable things. Even though like these women have personal trainers and coaches and dietitians and surgeons and mm. all of these things. And, like, a decent percentage of women that come in for plastic surgery have come in with a photo of a Kardashian. And, like, that's insane to me. But what I wanted to touch back on was that, yes, we have this, there's this effeminate stereotype that is adhered to gay men that sort of is attached with to vanity. But I also look into the queer culture that I'm a part of, and it is image obsessed. Mm-hmm. If you look at the photo... A dear friend of mine who is a non-binary fat person went to sidetrack bar in Chicago. Thank and, you for addressing that to the microphone. Well, it's a, it's a bar in Chicago. Well, I know. Yeah. It's a not a, I don't want to assume that all of your viewers are Chicago. No, I mean I'm glad you addressed it to the microphone and not me. Right. So it's a bar it's a bar in Chicago. <laughs> so anyway, so they went to this bar and they were with their friends that were thinner more conventionally attractive in a very loose sense of that and someone at the bar was taking photos Mm -hmm. and as soon as my friend came up to their friends the photographer sort of went oh you're here too so you know and, and if you look at the photos posted from this bar it's largely like conventionally attractive skinny muscular men right oh yeah so you know it is it's and and white and very predominantly white predominantly white predominantly adhering to white supremacist beauty standards and so it is so the vanity that i'm talking about that exists in the gay community is so much deeper and you know i think a lot of it has to do with assimilation a lot of it has to do with not wanting to adhere to these stereotypes of like gay men are weak or wimpy or whatever or not effeminate it's so much deeper uh, than than sort of the the surface uh, stereotypes that gay men have carried for mm-hmm. decades at this point, if not a couple like the last hundred years, really. Yeah, if you want to go back to like the twenties and 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 um, whatever. But that's what I see in this. Like that's what comes to mind in this movie specifically to be like, yeah. There really are, like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you yeah. don't. As queer people, as women, as effeminate humans, as, like, insecure, lonely people. Right. Rejected people. Because, and it's so funny, because later on in the movie, like, obviously Helen is, is rejected because she's sort of, like, mouseish, whatever, and the husband leaves her, whatever. But we find out that, like, Madeline wasn't invited over mm-hmm. when they were kids. And so, like... Both of these women have experienced rejection in different forms. They are the other. So you're absolutely right. I love that quote from from that essay. It's like incredible. It's like, yeah, it's not scary because we identify with the thing we're supposed to be scared of. Absolutely. That's what happens. And that can still be horror and that can still be valuable. So that's the important message. The other day, the other day I was, I was meeting my high school crush for a drink. Mm -hmm. I'm in a committed relationship with a woman, you know, he's... And so? And what? Well, but my point being, (laughs) like, it was so funny because as I was getting ready to just very casually have a drink with this guy that happened to be in town, I was like, oh my gosh, what do I wear? And I realized, like, why do I care what this guy thinks of me? I'm worried all of a sudden what a boy thinks of me. Really? Just a a boy? Like, Like, yeah, so... So wanting to look good for this person that you feel like has wronged you, even though he did, he was yeah. a perfectly nice guy, and you know I was very socially awkward, still am, you know, but like, but it, someone you were concerned about, someone their I was concerned image about. of you way back when, right? And so, you know, I think honestly, this viewing identified most with Madeline Ashton, mm-hmm. this, this Madeline want, Ashton. this want to be paid attention to and validated and 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 not rejected right so yeah i think there's there's definitely like that's that's absolutely nail on the head that's that's why it's not scary is because we as people that have been rejected resonate with with the monster with the outcast yeah yeah 
and even someone who's trying to bury that yeah as deeply as possible that rejected that outcast status that right and no like no matter how maybe that's why you live in a mansion alone with a husband you don't sleep with <laughs> we cracked it sorry we figured it out no i love it i like getting just everything everything about it into this the camp the connection to queerness they're inextricable the their back and forth is, is so clever everything. all of these characters are so clever mm-hmm. and so um quick with each other yeah like, like there is a wittiness that I think queer people inherently recognize because that's how we've learned to like cope and entertain ourselves oh, is by being witty. Then this is the perfect segue. You're yes. mentioning the wittiness. This is a segue into like what I want to close on. Can you pick out your favorite line? It could be for the line reading. It could be the line itself. And give give us your best impression of your favorite your favorite part of this movie. Oh and I'm going to find one as well. That's very that's very stressful. I just wrote Coconail. Coconail. <laughs> Coconail. Isabella Rossley is one and long Coconail. Um, uh, uh, I have a couple. I really liked. I really liked when Goldie Hawn was talking about how they were gonna drug Madeline Ashton, and she <laughs> says, first, we finish dinner," oh, which yes. I really loved. And then, and then I also really loved, "Oh, asking me to leave," and Bruce Willis says, "You just got here." Iconic. But, like, really, what really, really, what I'm like, yes, okay, at least lie quickly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then there's, of course, the flaccid, 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 all around, every day. <laughs> flaccid is so good. My favorite thing, this isn't even a dialogue, I can't reproduce it really on the. The, the the podcast, the thing that always gets me, that always sticks in my mind, I mean, besides now a warning, is yeah. her practicing for Helen to come meet her after the show oh, at the very so beginning. Oh, good. I, I forget it. I, I think I, like, every, it's just a guess. Time, every time I watch it, I remember that it lives in the back corners of my brain. Mm-hmm. Specifically that, that, like, very, very staged, like, gasp. It's so good. Hell. That's the other thing. That's the other thing I noticed this watch. Okay? They're named Mad and Hell. Mm -hmm. Heavy handed. (laughs) Heavy handed with big red talon nails. We need need our big red talon coke nails clawing out the eyes of an oppressive society that, that doesn't want us to rejoice in camp. What? I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to put a a, a meaningful spin on it. Maybe but there, we don't need it. Maybe there is no meaningful spin. <laughs> Do you remember where you parked the car? The most meaningful. Spin. What? Because their heads are spinning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I remember where I parked the car. <laughs> don't worry. Well, thank you again for talking to silly wonderful beautiful amazing movie with me for being your silly weird amazing self where can we find you i know you have a couple things coming up in chicago theater so what theater things are you doing here and where can we find you online oh gosh my gosh the anxiety variety show Show. i think i should rename it because you're the second person that's called the the, the, the anxiety variety i think it's just because the word variety there are variety shows there are variety shows and also variety hours Yes. We're we're getting away from it. What you doing? Yeah, I'm working on this solo show. I started working on it in 2019, like late summer 2019. And then we took it to Rhino Fest 2020, right before the pandemic. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm rebooting it with my friend Josh Sobel, who is formerly of Haven Theater and now is producing and directing it under Future Home Productions. And we're hoping to remount it next summer but we're working towards first well, a little reading uh developmental thing in in uh in late november just after thanksgiving it is a solo vaudevillian variety show starring cal walker the crippling anxiety and you there are thrills and chills and panic attacks and puppetry and uh music and all sorts of it's a lot of fun it's a it's it's a lot of a lot of feelings a lot of fun that thing in the bathroom is set for a little reading in September through some some friends of mine. 
I'm just cooking up. I'm cooking up little 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 appetizers, little side dishes. Nothing nothing wow. crazy. Nothing crazy right now. Well, where can people? You can find me on. Yeah, you can keep track of all find this me on the Twitter, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, the LinkedIn's, the Tumblers. Don't look for me on Tumblr. I won't be there. I did not die. Do not. Oh gosh. I mean, I knew you know, but uh, yeah. Do not come to my Tumblr at, at Cal Walks. <laughs> we'll put my we'll put my ads in. I'm the, gonna put the ads in the the drop down. The You'll find it. In, it's in our show notes. The ads in the chats. If you've been lo- reading our show notes, you already know where to go. If you haven't, I don't know. Cal Dash Walker dot net. Cal Dash Walker dot net. See, I was I was gonna read it. Cal Dash Walker dot net. At Cal Walks on Instagram. Get all your walking supplies. Well, thanks. Keep it creepy. I'll try my best. Well, <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode. If you have been having a good time with us this past year, please consider leaving a rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps us to know what you are enjoying and discover ways to help our podcast grow. And again, don't forget to come back on Thursday for the second part of our celebration featuring the truly cult classic Teaching Mrs. Tingle. Until then, keep it creepy. Click. Did you hang up? No, I just said click.